I have to just say this, this is another amazing part of Lilius. You tend to see people as being kind of mystical and poetic and reflective. And they're on the, the one side. And then you have the visionaries, the pioneers, the actors. Lilius was both. Welcome to the Renovari Podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is Miriam Huffman Rockness and Mimi Dixon. Miriam is the biographer of Lilius Trotter and founder of the Lilius Trotter Legacy. And Mimi Dixon joins us as a person whose life has been deeply moved by the writing, art, and life of Lilius. This was a fun interview. Seeing these two go back and forth for love of Lilius was just delightful. I found there's often a story behind just how the world becomes exposed to one of the historic devotional greats. I've heard it many times, you know, some old dusty forgotten book in the basement of a remote European monastery, just waiting to be uncovered, rediscovered. This story feels a little like what I learned from interviewing Robin Wrigley Carr on Evelyn Underhill's prayer book back in episode 231 and 243. But today we get to explore the story of our modern exposure to the weighty life of Lilius Trotter and just how it's intertwined with the life of our guest, Miriam Rockness. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Lilius Trotter, get ready. She brings a depth, a fire, and a beauty. And her work takes its place in the canon of the great devotional text. I spoke with Miriam from South Florida and Mimi from Golden, Colorado. Okay, this is a first for me. I have two Miriams on the same podcast today. Um, the story of this is quite is quite fun for me as I was talking with Mimi about interviewing you, uh, Miriam, and uh, she just was so excited. I'd love to be a fly on the wall with that uh, conversation. I said, well, then you should join us. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. I'd like to start with you, Mimi. Why Lilius? What has drawn you and, and, and fed you about her life? My first introduction to her was actually your dad, Richard Foster. He was, um, I was over at his house when we were working on another project and toward the end of the time, he said, do you know Lilius Trotter? And I said, no, I've never heard of her. And he said, well, I've been reading her journals. And he was doing this in preparation for an invitation to write a preface to a recent publication of on Lilius, of her writings. And Richard said, well, you should remedy the situation immediately. <laughs> so I went online with Amazon and I looked around and I saw a uh, biography that was written by Miriam Huffman Rockness and it's called A Passion for the Impossible. It is the life of Lilius Trotter. So I said, good place to start. So I ordered it, devoured the book, which is beautifully written, Miriam. And the woman whose life 
came before me and became a person was so remarkable that I started, I got everything I could get, that I could find that Amazon had and started reading. And she, um, she came alive for me as a person whose life was completely devoted to Jesus. And she did something that's so risky going off to Algeria as a single British woman with some of, with a couple friends, just took a freighter down there, didn't know the language. 1800s, right? Yes. Didn't know the language, nothing. Can you imagine white women showing up there in this country of Muslims? And she just started loving people. And it was, the country was not, Algeria was not open to missionaries. You couldn't start a church. You couldn't start a school. You couldn't um, do any kind of um, medical institution or hospital, nothing. And so they operated under the radar for years and years and years. And she just inhabited this space with Jesus in a way that was transformative to the lives that they came in contact with. That was my first introduction to her. And then she began to school me in prayer. So Lilius is an important, she's one of the people that I hope to spend some time with once we go to the other side of the veil. <laughs> That's good. Um, Miriam, for you, how did you discover Lilius? I was introduced to Lilius by two women that were visiting our church in Lake Wales. My husband is the minister, uh, and our name, our last name, Rockness, is probably not a name you've ever heard before. But these ladies, who were probably in their 70s at the time, they at the time seemed like old ladies, but they're really young now, uh, they recognized the name Rockness. And they had came up to my husband afterwards to find out if he had known Grady Rockness, who was Dave's mother. And his mother had ministered to their third sister in Singapore. And she was there as a teacher. And on the strength of that connection, they invited us to lunch. And that was the first time I ever heard the name Lilius Trotter. One of the ladies, these are the Barber sisters, Jane and Betty Barber, and one of the ladies, Jane, was an artist. And my spirit just kindled. Um, There's something that just resonated as she told the story about Lilius and her art, her relationship with John Ruskin, and yet her call in the final analysis to go to North Africa. So several months later, in the mail, in what would be a discarded um, checkbook box, huh. came two publications. Well, I saw the return address, and I couldn't think who that would be. But I stood there on the porch, and I opened it out of curiosity. And the first thing that came to my attention was a little booklet focused. The very first lines just gripped my heart. It was a little in a little wood in the morning, and she goes on to talk about this little bright light in the fir wood. And it was just a wilted dandelion, but it had its face up to the sun. And it was reflecting the glory of the sun. And then she goes into a little lesson on optics. All this is to say that and the other little booklet just stirred something in my heart. I just felt that uh, I was I was in the presence of holiness. Mm. And it was balm to my soul. And I wrote back an appreciation. And that began a series of installments of packages of their library. They were so concerned as they were downsizing 
that the Lilius Trotter books would end up in their church library on the bottom shelf and eventually thrown out. And hmm. so they must have, they had trust because of my husband and uh, responded to my interest. So over a period of, I would say, two or three years, I received these installations the, of, of um, books by and several about Lilius. And she just ministered to my spirit. Amy mentions prayer. Another thing, this would be the mid-80s. There was so much being written about church growth and strategies and uh, size seemed to be such a measure of importance. And here we are in this little town in the midst of the orange groves, Lake Wales, Florida, and I'm hearing a whole different message. I am hearing faithfulness. Yes. I am hearing planting without uh, consideration of yield, just trusting what God would do with yes. those seeds. But I'm also seeing... She was a woman of strategy. It wasn't a careless, lazy indifference. It was mm -hmm. a heart totally committed to God, but understanding that what she planted for eternity would be reaped eternally, whether she ever saw the results or not. Yep. That was the initial thing. So when the final installment came, it's a beautiful book, Between the Desert and the Sea, as her love story with the um, land and the people. And the, the message is, this is it. This is the mm -hmm. last. I was, I knew there were other things out there by her. So I began a quest. And this, for at least for me, was pre computer, pre search engine. It's hard, you know, snail mail and writing here and there. And I was determined to find everything I could about her or by her. And that began a personal search for no other reason than pilgrimage. I had absolutely no mm -hmm. design of. Uh, writing about her or talking about her, I just, I just couldn't get enough of of her. And also, the prayer element was so big to me. And her writings, well, I finally discovered that. And this was, does the name Patricia Sinjin mean anything to either of you? You may know her by Patricia Saint John. Yes, um, my mother loved her. Yes, and she wrote a wonderful children's book that yes. were a cut above what was being published in the in the Christian world. But it's actually through her that I discovered that the journals and the paintings of Lilius were headquartered in Loughborough, England. So that became another desire of mine to actually see these things with my own eyes. And so that's kind of phase two. One was gathering materials, reading them, absorbing them. So when the church, after 20 years, sent us to the Holy Land as a celebration of the 20 years, we rerouted ourselves back through England. And that's when I first saw with my own eyes some of her paintings. And, and one of the things that I was asked at the time was um, sort of a kind of what's in it for you? Why are you here? And the only thing I could say was the truth, which was pilgrimage. Hmm. This is personal pilgrimage. However, after leaving, I began to think the book Parables of the Cross. Yes. That needs to be in print. So I wrote back and just said, I've been thinking, would, do I have your blessing if I were to seek out a publisher for, to reprint Parables of the Cross? And they were quick to affirm that. And that began a second level of quest, which was to find somebody who would be willing to print a book with color paintings. Uh, by an author that nobody had ever 
most people had never heard of. So that's kind of the the second step in my my pilgrimage was how that came about. Is it accurate to say that we potentially would have lost some of these pieces of her work had it not been for little journey? Well, there, there's so many stages of things that, that could have happened. First of all is the collecting of this material. That is a wonderful story in itself. In the 80s, I believe it was, when there was another shutdown in Algeria, it was a political development. The missionaries left Algeria, but one woman who was married to a missionary, but she worked at the Spanish embassy, felt the hand of God on her to stay in Algeria until all of the archives, well, over a period of 18 months or two years, anyone that visited France or from England, she would put in their suitcase some of the works of, of Lilius. Huh. Her journals, her diaries, uh, wow. all the archives that went with the Algiers Mission Band. When she was sure she had saved the original of everything, she had a bonfire and burned the rest. Now, that's that part is... I would love to know if it was in that bonfire, but she say if she had not done that, we would have lost all those records. And that was a very brave thing for her to do. And we have an interview with her and we have actually have a recording of that interview where her mission colleagues, her parents, they all disapproved of what she was doing. Oh. But she felt the hand of God on her saying mm -hmm. this. So anyway, yes, as far as they all ended up in three cardboard boxes in a shed outside the, uh, the Arab World Ministries headquarters in Loughborough, England. Huh. That in itself is a miracle <laughs> that those yes. things preserved um, during that time. And so I had the privilege of going through those boxes and sharing with the staff that was there my discoveries of Lilius. And so, you know, um, it's a good question, Nathan. I have a feeling if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else God would have called for. I think this was the time for Lilius. And I think it was the time in part because of what we can do visually now um, online. So hers is more than just a um, written. It's it's the artistic component that really does set her apart. Don't you think, Mimi? That oh, that I that agree. And it strikes me. I did not know this continuation of the story. But one of the things that you talk about in the biography is that there is there was very little to show for what is it forty years? Yes, that she that she invested there, and she she died there, mm -hmm. surrounded by the people who came to love her and through yes. her to love Jesus. Yes, and. Uh, so on an ecclesiastical scale, as Richard Foster would say, mm -hmm. it doesn't really move the needle. That's right. But we see from a, from the view of eternity, and as you said at the beginning of your words, the effect that Lilius has had, and you look at the way that in the story that you just shared, the way that God preserved her work, preserved her paintings, preserved her diaries, where she was in constant communication yes. with with God and talking to Jesus and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. She is she is one of the luminous ones yes. whose story had been almost lost. And I'm so grateful to you 
that you followed this longing in your heart and God opened doors and provided a way for you to actually hold her journals in your hands yes, and yes. tell her story. Thank you. And again, I, I, it's almost hard for me to say, um, I don't know any other way but to say, I think God did anoint me to do that mm -hmm. because it, I just don't, I, I don't even feel I can take credit. I, I can take credit in the extent that I did do that, but it wasn't that I was such a visionary. And as I look back in that moment that I stood on the doorstep, looking at these things from Lily's for the first time, <laughs> I mean, I just felt uh, and we've all had these moments where you just feel something radiate within you from your soul. Mm, I mm. have gone back and read those same lines and uh. they've not had the same effect on me. Uh. And what I want to say is looking back, I think God anointed me. That yes. was a moment of anointment. I didn't know it and I did not know where it would lead. And if I had known, I would have been scared silly. But hmm. it was an issue for me of just obedience and things opening up. But uh, I do believe that God wants Lilius's legacy to be for this generation, 100 years later. And I just consider it one of the great privileges of my life that God has allowed me to collaborate with his purposes. Well, I, I would confirm that. Thank you. What I'm hearing, uh, Miriam, is is you you said yes, right? It was right there for you. You responded, mm -hmm. um, and and it reminds me a little of of Lilius, right? She said yes, mm -hmm. uh, Mimi. I'm curious if you have any sense as to where's the courage to say yes. Like, what do you, what, what did you hear in her words, and what that took? Oh, that's a good question, Nathan. She, um, I think she just flat fell in love with Jesus. And when she heard the missionary from North Africa talk about the the people there that were walking in darkness and had no way to know about Jesus, and he was making a plea to people who were, these were people of means in England and saying, is there anyone who feels the call of God on their heart to go as a missionary to bring the light to North Africa? And Lilius, I, <laughs> I can only imagine the man's face when she said, here am I, send me, because he would have thought, mm, not so much. This, this woman, you know, she was pretty young at the time. He just, I don't think that he felt like she was what he was looking for or that there would be anything to come of it. And when she applied to a mission board, they turned her down because she had a, a heart. She had heart issues. So they said no to her. And she got with some of her friends and she said, I feel compelled by the Lord to go. So she, they paid their own way. They went without any group sponsoring them, making way for them, providing entry, teaching language, none of it. She just went because her love for the Lord and her concern for people that did not know him was so great. And the interesting thing is, um, I don't think, Miriam, you, you're the one that would know. I don't know that what Lilius might have imagined ever came to fruition. But she just kept walking one faithful step at a time. And it, it was, uh, God was doing something that was 
pretty much invisible in terms of outcome and results and some big wonderful thing, some mega church that was planted. There are some medical institution that never happened. And she had questions about that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in her art and in her words, Jesus spoke to her very directly about it. It's exactly what you said, Miriam, at the beginning, that it looked small. It looked ineffectual. It really looked like it, like nothing much ever happened over 40 years. But the impact spiritually, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. impact of her life and her legacy is only now beginning to become visible. In a day when we talk about celebrities and big ministries and the favor of God showing up in buildings and bucks and bodies and all of these things, the words of Lilius Trotter has spoken very deeply into my life and encouragement to trust, do not despise the day of small things, because this is a seed, like we read in Matthew 13. This is a seed that is planted and grows in ways that are evidence of God's presence and God's inspiration, anointing. So I think it's all about courage. It's about, at another level, it's about an obedience Mm. to just follow Jesus where he's going and trust him with outcomes. Well, right along with, with what you're saying, she had such a grasp of eternity. Yes life, this life in light of eternity. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Parables of the Cross, she ends uh, the, the this work, which I think was a her consummate devotional work, was the Parables of the Cross, followed by Parables of the Christ Life. But she has a picture of what looks like a dead piece of wood. Mm-hmm. The wood it's the wood sorrel, and yet out of this dead is coming life. And she writes, and I'll read this, the results need not end with our earthly days. Should Jesus tarry, our works will follow us. And then she goes on to develop that thought. And I, and I love that, that what we sow for or plant for eternity will be sown in God. And the, the, you talked about the day of small things. She spoke to that regularly. But another line from her is in God's time and God's way. But to follow up even her dream for a church visible, which she never saw, she came close to it on a few occasions. Uh, I had the privilege several years ago of being part of a panel at the Bream Institute at Fuller Seminary where Mm -hmm. the film Many Beautiful Things was shown. And uh, Mako Fujimori, the artist, the Japanese artist, was part of that panel. At that time, I met a woman who was an Algerian Christian. Mm. And she was going back right after this time where she was going to be showing the film to 600 Christian Ooh. Algerians. The church that Lilius never saw has sprouted up in Algeria today. Oh, Miriam. And, I mean, I, that was the highlight for me of being out there, was hearing this witness. Now, this church is now being attacked and there are daily, and it's very subtle. They get them on technicalities. So the church is under attack, but it is nonetheless, nothing, nothing can snuff this out. And there's personal testimony and witness to people who've come as missionaries today who say evidence of a work that was planted before they were even there. 
Exactly. So some of that is credited to Lilius and her co-workers. And there were other people, too, that uh, whose names we'll never hear about, that, that brought the light and life and love of Jesus to a land. So we, we, I mean, it's such an encouragement to me to know that if I'm just faithful, and it may be to some very common, ordinary tasks of today that don't seem to have any significance, if I'm just faithful, like you said, Nathan, to say yes to whatever is in front, God will take care of the rest, won't he? It's his work. Isn't that a relief? Oh. Isn't it just, can't we just relax in the joy of knowing we do our part, but God does the rest? If I could, I'd like to read another thing that Lilius wrote in her journal that goes right along with what you're describing here, because she was talking about how the place where she was serving, where there was such a darkness there, and it felt like you could almost reach out and touch the powers of darkness, the powers of evil at work. And she wrote in her journal, there is a vibrating power going on down in the darkness and dust of this world that can make itself visible in startling results in the upper air and sunlight of the invisible. Each prayer beat down here vibrates up to the very throne of God and does its work through that throne on the principalities and powers around us. We can never tell which prayer will liberate the answer, but we can tell that each one will do its work. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, she quotes 1 John 5. This is the confidence we can have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So she just, as you say, she had absolute confidence in the power of God and in the invisible unseen world that surrounds us. And she was talking here about persistent prayer. Don't flag, don't hold back, keep praying and praying and praying because it releases powers of God into our situation. She just has taught me so much about relying on God. As I hear you speak, you have such a grasp of lilies. I'm, I'm very impressed. Uh, but oh. what I want to say is this, in regard to prayer, and that's what you're talking about here, it would be a real study to go through her journals mm. and just trace the evolution of her understanding of prayer. That's she, good. She builds on it. It isn't that she changes something. She talks about persistent prayer, and she talks about different kinds of prayers. But she was a student of prayer to, the, mm -hmm. to her dying day. And uh, one of the things that began to evolve in her later years, and in, in the early years, it was more name it and claim it. Yeah. She, she never stopped that. She never stopped telling God exactly what her heart desired for him and for the kingdom. But she began to, and in fact, in one of the places in her journal or diary, she talks about that she used to think that prayer started in our heart, went up to God, and he rained down his answer. But she said, I've come to feel more and more that prayer involves listening and waiting so that his ideas 
come down yes. and we pray up. And those are guaranteed answers if if they if the prayer comes from him. And yes. I, so as I'm listening to you, and you're such a good writer, I think oh. there's a book. I think there's a book about her prayer, her prayer life. <laughs> I know you have nothing else to do, but uh, that would be just wonderful if you'd ever consider uh. writing, following that line. And at the very end of her life, she came up with a book, and I'm trying to think of the name of the author, but it was called Creative Prayer. Hmm. She was so enthralled with this that in her log for 1927, the last year of her life where she recorded all her correspondence coming and going, uh, she was sending out copies of this book to people huh. and saying, read this book. Now it is in print. It's, uh, it's, been, in, it's been reprinted in the, by a publisher that does this kind of thing. I think you could find it. So anyway, she was a student of prayer to her dying day. She was always learning. So anyway, Mimi, uh, I don't pretend to be God telling you what to do, but <laughs> honestly, with your understanding of Lilius and your mm. deep connection to prayer, it would certainly be a wonderful thing to, to try. It wouldn't have to be a very long book either. <laughs> it's just tracing that evolving of a spirit, a soul in the school of prayer. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. I, who knows? Who knows what the Lord's else to do? <laughs> yeah, what the Lord's invitation will be and what an what a yes looks like. But I love what you just said about the evolution in her understanding of what's happening in prayer, of what this conversation is that takes place between ourselves and the heart of the Trinity when we're resonating together in that oneness and that unity and compassion fills our hearts for those who, um, who don't, who have not yet come to an awareness of and entered into an experience of that kind of intimate communion of fellowship where, where you begin to see differently and you respond differently and your longing is inflamed. Yes. So I, Things that Lilius said are have been so important to me because she puts words around an experience mm -hmm. that enables you to more consciously and deliberately enter into it. And I love what you said about how she moved from an understanding of prayer that she probably received growing up and was reinforced in um, mm -hmm. Kinswick. Is that what it was? Kinswick? Keswick. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Keswick. Yeah. And with the teaching that she was receiving and listening to Moody and others who were really um, fanning the embers of flame in England, the way that it opened her heart to going down to Charing Cross and reaching out to prostitutes, mm -hmm. inviting, making a place for them to come and live and learn about the love of God and begin to learn some other ways to support themselves. And out of that, she really, I think she really thought initially that God would continue to develop and deepen that relationship until she had her own porch moment, listening to this missionary talking about people far away in North Africa. And she felt this as a, as Wesley would say, this movement, move, warming of the Holy Spirit. And she realized that's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. I was born for this. And it was way, you know, Ruskin was trying to get her to become the new um, premier painter. He knew that she had skills that if they were developed, 
that she could become a watercolor person and people would be collecting her work. She had that kind of ability and she had to make a decision there. Does she go with something that she loves and has a passion for with somebody who could really develop that? Or should she respond to this weird, strange, out of the box call to go live in a completely different country that wasn't open at all to women it wouldn't be open to um, people from the, you know, from England. Right. Mm -hmm. And for her to invest her life in a people where it was questionable. If any, gosh, mm -hmm. when Jesus lays that before us, what do we do? When that flame is in our heart, how do we respond? It is courage. You're right, Nathan. And it is a yes. But Oh, how he drew her into the stratosphere of what he sees and invited her to be part of something and taught her over the years to trust him for outcomes. It just, for people who are working in places of ministry or praying for family members that well, seem to be so far away, how, you know, Lilia speaks with a with an energy and a light and a knowledge, and she illustrates it. She enables you to see it through her. And, and she wrote these things in her. She painted these things into her journal for Jesus. Yes, they weren't for the other eyes. No, they were. They were the, from her heart. I think she was coming full circle with her own experience. But I'm glad you brought up the the challenge that Ruskin brought into her life, because that's yes. something I think is important to be said about that. Uh, one of the things that I have had to, there are two, there's two um, potential fallacies that have been takeaways from that. Uh, one is that you have to give up the gifts God gave you. Yes, if you're going to right. be his person, you're you're just throw it. You deny yourself everything, and 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 that's confusing to some people. The second mm -hmm. is that she made the decision and went straight to North Africa. There was another ten years between the what she really decided with Ruskin's challenge. He brought it to a head, and he was correct when he said, "I can make you into England's greatest living artist." Whether he could have or not, we'll never know. But that's what he—that's what he dangled in front of her. That's seductive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, that loves art and the community of artists and the mind and all. But the caveat is, you must give yourself completely to it. And he was right. If you're going to be a concert pianist, if you're going to be a Olympian athlete, you have got to give everything to it. And so the struggle of her soul was, what would that mean in terms of the heart God gave her? for London, for the, I mean, yes. you, you know, let's just look at Lilius really was a Renaissance woman. Talk about social justice. Yes. She was on the streets. She was taking people back. She was training, help giving these women who had been destitute, getting them warm housing and clothing and food and helping them find uh, work that was noble. And, and and getting them out of that environment. It wasn't just a rescue mission, getting them off the street. No, She was no. committed to spending the next, the rest of her life loving London. But everything that she was doing in those 10 years and the years preceding, but 10 years following this total commitment thing. You remember the dandelion Mimi, the picture yes. of the dandelion? Yes. Where she talks about detachment with just a... Mm -hmm. 
and the seeds scatter. Yeah. And it's a total release. That was her moment. Uh, some of us keep doing it over and over again, but Lily's was one that just was wholehearted. But all during those 10 years, she was developing strategy as to how to work with this kind of person to develop materials to reach them. Um, I have some materials that have never been published that of hers of Sunday school lessons she developed uh, for the junior age and with little diagrams and pictures and all. But she was learning to be strategic, learning to understand people in a way that she could reach them with the message. now people say, Christy Wilson, the um, senior, said that Lilius was a hundred years ahead of her time hmm. in her missiology. Mm-hmm. But all that was being formed and developed in London. She comes to Algeria. It's the same heart. It's just different people. It's different methods. So the other thing I want to say is she never gave up her art. She gave up. She chose the role of art in her life. What she gave up was fame, the the possibility Uh, of fame, the possibility of acclaim. But she never, ever stopped using her art. And isn't it wonderful today that we can just pull up these pictures on the computer and just see in just vibrant color what she did in her journals and diaries? And um, so anyway, that's just a very important thing for me to say about Lilius. God doesn't give us gifts to stomp on them and say they don't matter. If we are willing to be used, he'll use everything. But if our motive is fame, yes, yes. that's another story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's what oh. I wanted to make clear. Well, and then and then talk about the things that she developed, um, the the little booklets, because that was ahead of its time. You know, normally yes. you you just bring in pamphlets from England or whatever, and the people would like, you know, go right over their head. But talk about what she did with her words and her paintings that she made available to people in Algeria and the Sufis. Yes. Oh, that's another whole thing. The the whole Ah. Sufi thing. And I I want to make this comment, um, Nathan, in terms of gratitude to Renivari and in particular to your father for recognizing Lilius when nobody had ever heard of her or very, yes. very few people had heard of her. He, he recognized, and I think it was in his second spiritual classic book that he, that Lilius was presented. And I think he excerpted from the way of the sevenfold secret, which was the work she developed for the Sufi mystery. For the Sufis. Mm-hmm. But more recently in the streams film, when Lilius was a focus of, from history, it was the incarnational life. Okay. Yeah. And this is an, I have to just say this, this is another amazing part of Lilius. You tend to see people as being kind of mystical and poetic and reflective. And they're on the the one side. And then you have the visionaries, the pioneers, Mm. the actors. Lilius was both. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an amazing blend of this life of the spirit and reflection. And she was truly a Christian mystic in the best sense of the word. And yet at the same time, she was a pioneer. She was a visionary. She was a strategist. She, I mean, I, it's just uh, I, one of my fears. You said you want to meet Lilius in, in, in heaven. I do. I'm, I feel like the first thing I need to say to her is I am sorry for having oh. taken on. I, I have I, never having met you, I've decided to define you to the world. But 
all that is to say she's beyond definition, isn't she? Um, she her, is. Her work was so varied. But you you wanted me to talk for a moment uh, to how she used. Some people have said she's as fine a writer as she is an artist. And then also her ability to weave text and visual uh, is something. Um, I had the privilege of speaking to friends of Ruskin at Brantwood, Ruskin's home in the Lake District. Huh. And I was able to tell, to use the expression, the rest of the story. Oh. Because Lilius, you know, she had this relationship with Ruskin and came up to Brantwood and then she disappears. Here's the rest of the story. And I was able to share that with him. And present was Stephen Wildman, who was the head of the Ruskin program. And uh, and I asked, somebody said, well, what do you think made her work outstanding? And I said, well, if you're talking art, you're asking the wrong person. You need to ask Stephen Wildman because he has uh, been involved in the research and he was actually in the film interviewed. And and one of the things that, that he said um, was, in addition to other things, her ability to weave text and painting. And mm -hmm. that's what she did in answer to your question. She had hardly set foot in Algiers, and she was already taking the few words that she knew and having them written out and going to the cafes on the weekend. And then she'd ask the vendors there if they would read aloud what she had written because she wanted to hear the pronunciation, but she was actually planting that message. And then very early on, she began with most primitive printing materials to do some sketches along with these little story um, parables. And then later she developed really many of these story parables illustrated. She came into the idea of color printing, which is very costly, but she had a method of two color printing. So just pen and ink with red illustration. She discovered that if you gave things away, they didn't read it, but if you charged them a tiny bit, it had value, but it had much more value if it had color. So then she began to put color into uh, the material she developed. It was all so strategic, but in there, as she said in her goals, she didn't want the Billies and Bobs from England. She wanted Muhammad and Ali of the, of, of the and so what she did, even in preparing um, visually, she understood our Bible is so, that they valued things by the visual and our Bibles were, not attractive to them, just black words on white pages. And so even as she began to develop um, translations of the Gospels, she wanted it to be on creamy paper. She wanted the folders to fold in. Is that called a French fold? She said to have worth to the Arab people, it had to be beautiful. So she understood their aesthetic. And if this, if these words have value, then they must be presented beautifully. So that's another whole book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely delightful. I want to thank you both so much for sharing about your friend. And Miriam, I'm, I'm very confident that when you do meet Lilius, she'll say thank you. She'll say thank you. Oh, thank you. Again, that was Miriam Huffman-Rockness and Mimi Dixon talking about the work and life of Lilius Trotter. There's a really good film about the life of Lilius. It's called Many Beautiful Things. You'll want to check this out. 
Also encourage you to visit the Lilius Trotter Legacy website at liliustrotter.com. L-I-L-I-A-S-T-R-O-T-T-E-R.com. On that site, you'll find a number of Lilius's books, including Miriam's biography titled A Passion for the Impossible, The Life of Lilius Trotter. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We are so grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare in this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>